0: So to me, uh, there's no shame in devoting your life to the perfection of craft beer.
1: Welcome to the Lush Life Podcast. I'm your drinking companion, Susan Schwartz, and I bring you the how-to guide for living life one cocktail at a time. Thanks to my mother's love of martinis, the first words I spoke were shaken, not stirred and I've been obsessed by cocktails ever since. Together, we'll learn from bartenders, brand ambassadors, distillers, and others, why certain drinks are popular in certain cultures, how to make the perfect old fashioned, when to shake and when to stir, and so much more. Hear that sound? It's time to cozy up to the bar and let the fun begin. Our guest today made his way from Georgetown, Kentucky to Tahara, Japan and came back with Ganbaru, the Japanese word for never stopping until a goal is achieved. This became crystal clear when I met Daniel Harrison, co-founder of Country Boy Brewery. D.H., as he's known, was always a beer lover, but during his stint teaching English in Japan, it became a passion. Arriving home in Kentucky, he and his partners were inspired not only to make beer but the very best, and won't stop until this goal is achieved.
0: So I am born and raised in Scott County, Kentucky. Scott County, uh, Central Kentucky, Georgetown, uh, in Scott County. I went to Scott County High School, graduated in 2000. After high school, I went to Georgetown College, which is in Georgetown, Kentucky. Uh, After Georgetown, where I majored in French language and business administration history, at georgetown after that uh i went to grad school at the university of kentucky just up the road in lexington majored in international organizations and uh, economic agric- agricultural economics the patterson school of international commerce and diplomacy is the name of the school
1: now you said you studied french did you think you were going to go to france yeah that?
0: i've been blessed my entire life to be an adventurer i had parents that pushed me to do that uh, so i got to travel to europe several times in high school. Uh, I did six summers consecutively in a row doing humanitarian aid in Bosnia, former Yugoslavia after the war uh, with a missions group to start out with. And then a humanitarian aid group after that, Uh, you know, I've been to South America, just, I've been blessed to travel and I've always been an adventurous person, adventurous eater and adventurous drinker.
1: So you Uh, had this, you went into graduate school and you came out with this degree. Yeah.
0: And then spun my wheels a little bit, trying to figure out what do I, what do I want to do? even though I still don't know what I I want to be when I grow up. Uh, But one day an opportunity presented itself uh, through an email from Georgetown College saying, uh, we are accepting applications for teachers, English as a second language teacher, ESL teachers, uh, to go to Tahara, I.G. Japan, Georgetown, Kentucky's sister city. Uh, so you could interview. Georgetown grads are open. Uh, you can interview and be considered for the position. So I thought, man, it would be awesome. I had no connection to Japan. I didn't know how to speak anything in Japanese, uh, say anything in Japanese, had no Japanese training, culturally or otherwise. Just knew that I'd never been to Japan. Sounds cool. I'll take a chance and go. Uh, and so I interviewed, uh, was selected, and then got picked to get on a plane uh, September 11th of 2006 to head to Japan. And so... <clears throat> A buddy that i knew from college was also on the plane with me we both were picked together got to japan and just fell in love with it uh, japan can be a hard culture to assimilate into you know when i was in bosnia i could blend in when i was in france i could blend in as long as i didn't open my mouth and let kentucky come out uh, but in japan it's a little more difficult because no matter how long i'm there i can never blend in you know 100 and so when you're there as an expat normally you have to get into something whether it's i had friends that got into history or flower arranging or japanese music uh, we got into beer. I've always liked beer. Thought Japanese beer was super cool. Thought Japanese microbrews were super cool. They were still kind of fresh and new. They were just legalized in the mid '90s over there. And so, started going around with a blog and detailing Japanese craft breweries uh, in English. One of the now, first. Now, were you a blogs. beer drinker? Boy, yeah, I always was a big beer fan. You okay. know, Showing up to the bar, I'd be the one that wasn't drinking the normal stuff. I like, pretty have weird. It's on tap. Like I said, I got that from mom and dad. I want the weird food. I'll give it a try. I'll travel to the weird place. Uh, I've always been kind of a, a wanderer. Uh-huh. And so. Uh, Do you remember the first place you went in
1: in Japan?
0: Like the first pub? Oh, absolutely. There was a bar right next to our uh, apartment, actually, uh, which was the first place we went in to have a drink there 100%. It's called Kiraku. It's still there today. Uh, and you did you just like go through each beer and well, like well, try a little bit different everything. in Japan. Most of those bars like that just have one type of beer on tap. Wow. You have to get kind of the craft-centric bars to try some different stuff. Because Japan, the Japanese are still having their uh, love-hate relationship with what is craft beer. And education is a big part over there as well. Uh, but through the blog, we met a bunch of brewers, met a bunch of uh, microbrewery owners and things like that. What was your blog called? Uh, Good Beer and Country Boys. Okay, Hence where the name comes from. Uh, there weren't many, there's a lot of like, uh, Northeastern folks in the States who go over there and teach or from California, obviously from proximity, uh, not a lot of folks from the South, definitely not a lot from Kentucky. And so we were, my friend, Nathan and I, uh, who were there, who actually happens to be spoiler alert, my business partner. Now, one of my partners, uh, we were known as the country boys to all of both the expats and our Japanese friends because we were from Kentucky. So, uh, hence that's where the name comes from. But <clears throat> after meeting, uh, Brian Baird, B-A-I-R-D Baird beer company, uh, we were just infected by his passion for craft beer and how he ran his business and his ethos when it came to, you know, the best beers out there. Spare nothing. Spare no expense. We can make the greatest So beer he was an
1: American expat. From
0: Oxford, Ohio.
1: Making
0: beer in Japan. Yeah. Started a brewery there in 2000 with his wife, Sayuri. He's from, like I say, he's from Ohio, uh-huh. but he's been there since the mid-80s. Uh, so, you know, got a great brand, great brewery. Fell in love with that. And then just fell in love with his beer and his, and his like I said, his whole brand and kind of uh, transitioned the blog a little bit to more finding less, more breweries but finding his beer out there in the wild. Uh, and then when we came back from Japan, Nathan and I, we uh, you know kind of met with him and he, in you know, a very Asian way, Japanese way, especially charged us with coming back to Kentucky and starting a brewery. You know, like follow your passions, DH, you can go back and learn how to run the business and learn how to manage the brand and be the front of the house. Nate, go back and learn how to, you know, brew the beer on a commercial level. We were homebrewers at the time. That's very different than where we are now. Uh, and it was a very real thing. And we, I, mean, I can remember in 2008 sitting at that bar with him thinking, you know, if we really get down and we, you know, bootstrap it, you know, tighten the belt, uh, we can get a brewery open by 2015. And we got it open in 2012. Uh, so four years after returning. Uh, we, we stayed in Japan. I stayed in Japan in the two years of 2008. Oh, okay. So, we got back in 2010, All and right. we opened in Lexington in 2012.
1: All right. And how did you know
0: what beer to start with? You know, we had an extensive homebrew catalog of stuff that we brewed, and we've been brewing, you know, we kind of changed from brewing the different beer every week to trying to brew the same beer every week and make it consistent. And have friends over and give us opinions on it, and that was kind of different. Like you know, everybody's ever homebrewed, their best friends. Like, yeah, beer is awesome. You should start a brewery. I'm like, cool. Well, did they did you did they drink your beer for free? I'm like, yeah. Well, cool. We Ask him would he give you five dollars for it? Ah, it ain't that. It ain't five dollars worth. So mm-hmm. what we started doing is, yeah, is this beer good. Cool. It's five dollars for the next one, and we weren't really charging for it. We we're just saying, is there value associated mm-hmm. with this? Is that good? Uh, and so we built a catalog from there, and then when we got the brewery open, we just kind of rolled that into. Uh, to where we wanted to go
1: and now how long so it's been 2010 to 2012
0: we opened in lexington so we'll be seven uh when we get to february of 2019 Mm -hmm. Uh, we broke ground on this facility in march of 2016 so where were you before you were in in downtown lexington with our original brewery and now we sit in the lanes run business park in georgetown scott county which is just Mm -hmm. 20 minutes up the road uh, but a vastly different culture a lot more rural here uh, with space to be able to build this 24,000 square foot facility versus our entire facility. There's about 4,000 square feet.
1: When did you know that it was time to move?
0: You know, about two and a half years in, we realized that if we wanted to continue on a trajectory of where it felt like we were going, we needed to have more space. We need to have more room with the potential to roll. Uh, There was a big risk, though, you know, no one has a crystal ball to know how both the beer community is going to accept us, how the beer market's going to go. So at some point in time, we just had to say, okay, we're going to trust ourselves. We think we make the best damn beer in America. Let's give it a a go and sign the note, talk to the banks, get the money in place, talk to the construction company. Uh, It was a long process there, too, because we don't do anything halfway. We want to make sure even down to the, the electricians and the plumbers, they see our vision, So that when you look at this place, every little detail has been thought about uh, when it comes to pouring the freshest beer, minimally processed ingredients, most efficient production uh, uh, processes in the back, things of that nature.
1: What do you think you took from Japan that, you know, that you use in that Ah. Uh, art?
0: Japanese people, Japanese culture and the Japanese people have an inherent Appreciation and desire for perfection of whatever craft they're in. Uh, so, the greatest example of that is a movie was out a couple years ago called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. Uh, but, you know, the, you typically out there when you're in a culinary or a craft, the, the pinnacle of of the innovation and the perfection of a machine is a Japanese version of it. Uh, and I think that just goes back to their culture of whatever we do, we're going to dedicate our life to. Uh, when I was there, one of my teachers at one of my schools had a tree in his front yard and his house was also a shrine and the tree was over like the cemetery next to it. And, uh, he said, you know, his task was, he, he was an arborist, you know, albeit not a trained one. Uh, but he said, you know, in, uh, my my grandchildren's grandchildren, this tree might be perfect then, right? So we don't really have that in the Western world, more importantly, America, because we see everything as on a finite lifespan of our lifespan. But in the Japanese culture, you know, we're we're perfecting things that they may not, we may not be able to attain perfection until 10 generations from now, but it's my job with my time on earth to be able to put, to advance my craft, right? And the fact that, you know, whether you're making pencils or chairs or Japanese knives or... Uh, textiles or whatever it may be cars uh, i can say that and obviously we're in georgetown kentucky so we have a super affinity for toyota in its, and it's influ- influence and impact on uh culture and economics here in central kentucky it's the dedication of your life to perfecting your craft so to me uh there's no shame in devoting your life to the perfection of craft beer uh and i took that from brian baird Uh, which some some people, especially with the American mindset, might think that and say, oh, that's silly. You know, it's just beer at the end of the day. And while we don't take ourselves super serious, uh, we take what we do very serious. And the fact that people find a lot of enjoyment in this liquid. Uh, A lot of people cement life memories around their experiences with beer. Uh, And and even now with our beer, you know, there are people that have had their first date uh, in the tap room or they met Uh, At a restaurant and they remember sharing a country boy beer together Uh, or, you know, there was a new dad and his best friend brought him over a six pack of country boy beer to celebrate his daughter being or son being born or uh, or even on the other side of life. There are people that can say, you know, the last beer I ever shared with my dad before he passed was a country boy shotgun wedding. And I'll always remember that as my dad's last beer that we had together. Uh, So we take that extremely seriously that even though we're just making beer, you know, there are people out there that are looking for cures for cancer and making rockets that fly to other planets and all types of crazy things. We just make beer, but at the same time we make a, a liquid and have a brand and have created an experience that people have life defining moments that are built around. And to us, that's extremely important. And so that, would, I, that would, I would say would be a direct pull from our time in Japan of that. Uh, you know, you, we want to, even though it's just beer, we, to the nth degree, need to be in the pursuit of making the perfect one and you know it's it's that climbing the mountain till you get to the pinnacle right but when you think you're almost there the clouds part and you see you still got a long way to go well spoiler alert again you never get to the top that's the point uh, but the point's not getting to the top the point's to climb right
1: well can i will you join me in having my first country boy moment
0: absolutely all right absolutely Usually
1: after we finish chatting, we go on to our cocktail of the week. But this week, we're doing something a little different. Since we're talking beer, I decided to scrap the cocktail of the week for this episode. Instead, we're going on a tour. When I visited Country Boy, DH walked me through the brewery, and I thought, why not take you with me as well? So consider this our first lush tour. Just a reminder. Other people were with me on the tour and a few asked questions, including me. So you'll hear a few voices on the recording as well as mine and DHS. So let's begin our lush tour of Country Boy Brewery.
0: Business less than a year later. Uh, we opened in Lexington, February 10th, 2012. We opened up here February 17th of 2017. We missed uh, five years to the day, by one week. No, but that's just because the bathrooms weren't running, and we figured if you're having a beer establishment, you needed to have bathrooms. (laughs) So we we waited a week, uh, which is why we weren't dead on the money. Uh, We've been, like I said, coming up in February on on two years in this facility. Uh, This is the largest uh, brew house in Kentucky. Uh, There are breweries that make more liquid than we do, but this is the largest facility. Uh, But also, just a little fun fact, this is the first new construction brewery in Kentucky since Prohibition. Every other brewery that exists in Kentucky right now, including our other brewery in Lexington has been retrofitted into an older building, which we looked at doing that, but we kept coming back to, we wanted this place to be totally built 100% around how do we make the best beer as efficiently, as safely, and as economically as possible. In addition to having a state of the art tap room, uh, that's out front. Uh, so tap room in Lexington is about as big as this room here. It's very small. Um, you can see the tap room patio out here affords us the ability to do many, many events, uh, and things like that for the city and for the community. Uh, we this room right here is our private room, obviously, as you can see. It's available at no cost in the in the afternoons for any nonprofit or civic group. You just gotta call us and tell us. Uh at night we rent it out for parties and things like that. We have we've hosted everything at the brewery from knitting groups, church groups, prayer groups, uh, bicycle route, bicycle. Rides. We had to be careful with bike rides. It's two different types of people. Groups. Bicycle no groups. <laughs> uh, motorcycle groups. Uh, all types of stuff. Plus we've had concerts here that have been pretty pretty well attended. So it's a pretty cool facility uh, that we're really, really proud of. So we're glad to you guys here today. The first year we were in business, we brewed 500 barrels of beer. Uh, this year we should hit 21,000. Uh, 21,000? Yeah, so we went from, we had zero employees when we started. Uh, we should be about 45 by the end of the year this year. We're about we're about 36 right now. So once the kitchen staff comes on and we hire a few other people, uh, that should push us to 40 to 45. We just hired last week our first lab technician. Uh, she has a lab in the back. She I, I don't even know what she does in there. Hopefully she knows what she's doing things way <laughs> over my head. Uh, she's doing all types of quality control. It looks like a doctor's office. She's growing up all types of microbes and yeast uh, because now reaching the size that we reach now it's very important we keep our quality and our, our, our QC at at top-notch. We have four brands that are our core brands, which you see on the back wall back here, which are American Pale Ale, Halfway Home, Cliff Jumper is our India Pale Ale, Shotgun Wedding is our uh, brown ale with vanilla beans. Our biggest seller by far is our Cougar Bait, the Blonde Ale. Uh, and a lot of that is just because it, we attribute that to the type of drinker that's in Southeast part of the US uh, that's used to drinking that type of liquid. Uh, but it's about still 75-80% of all production here is that one beer. Has it turned full circle so that you're exporting to Japan now? We've sent exports back three separate times to Japan Yeah, for special events. We don't send beer all the time there. But that's kind of been a dream come true to be able to see our stickers and see our signs and people that, at bars that I frequent in Japan that have our beer and drinking now. It's kind of cool. Do you sell out of the state? We do. We are in Indianapolis, south of Indiana, a little bit into Ohio, all of Kentucky, all of West Virginia, most of Tennessee, and in Roanoke, Virginia. So, six states total is our distribution. On draft draft and in in these four packages mainly. Those those four we have in cans. We have some other cans as well uh, that we put in seasonals and some, especially bottles. Uh, You'll see we have a big sour collection of wild fermented beers here that are in bottles. That stuff probably stays pretty close to home. No exports to the UK yet? None yet. None yet. The they, <clears throat> we've got a few friends over there. There's actually a Kentucky brewery in London or in uh, Louisville that has a connect some really deep connections with some breweries in London, and they've been shipping product over. So we've talked about sending some stuff that way. Basically, we send uh, through the Kentucky Guild of Brewers. We would send a shipping container full of Kentucky beer to there, and then they would send us. They would return it full of some beer uh, from London. So that's kind of the idea for now. Start small like that and see where we get to. But inherently. Craft beer uh, in general, especially smaller breweries like us, uh, freshness is key. So once we start getting around, like when we send it to Japan, literally on the other side of the globe, the quality is that we have to kind of look at that because we want to make sure that we're still sending good product over there. Uh, but everything that we start with is our malted barley. It comes through these pipes, these stainless steel pipes here above us. It, it finally goes into this tank, stainless tank right in front of me, the smaller one. Uh, from there, we have a secondary system that fires up. And it takes it into the large mash tun on the far right. Basically in there, we're adding that ground grain with hot water, and we're gonna pull all those great flavors, sugars, and colors out of that grain. Uh, where did your barley come from? Most of our barley is from the Midwest or uh, Southwest Canada. Uh, and that's because they have malting houses there. We do use some, some Kentucky product, as much as we can, but heavily, uh, the malted barley and stuff is going to come from the Midwest. Uh, once we're in there, we're going to sit for about an hour. we pull pulled all those good flavors, colors, sugars out. We go to the middle vessel, which is our boil kettle. We're going to boil for about 90 minutes. We're going to add our hops in there, uh, potentially any other adjunct flavorings, if it's depending on what kind of beer we're making. Uh, asterisk on that, we only use real product. There's no fake extracts. If it's a fruit, it's a real fruit. It's a puree. It's a real puree. There's no chemicals or additives added. Uh, we're going to boil for about 90 minutes. Then we're gonna to go to the Whirlpool, which is the last tank where it's gonna spin it in a circle and we're gonna leave particulate behind and sit it on down the line. So basically when people talk about the brewing process, this part is where we're actually cooking the mash and everything like that. Uh, this is fermentation bay, fermentation rows, uh, where, the, where the beer, up, up until this point, it's not beer yet, it's not alcoholic. Uh, we've gotta add our yeast in line. That's the yeast key into the fermentation process. Yeast is gonna eat the sugars uh, as a process of that respiration, it's going to give off CO2 and alcohol. Uh, and that's what's gonna turn the wort into beer. Now, if I'm giving a tour to some younger kids, I know I can always get a laugh when I say, "You know, basically what's going on in there scientifically broken down is yeast eats the sugar and has a little bowel movement and lets out some alcohol, and has some gas come out, and has some CO2 come out. And they all laugh and chuckle about it. But if they're old enough, then I can follow that up with, so literally, this is the best shit you've ever tasted. <laughs> and usually I get booed off shortly after that. Uh, but that's, that's, that's the fermentation process. All our fermentation is controlled. The black pipes that run above us actually control the temperature of the tanks. They're double-walled, so we can control how hot that liquid's getting. As the, ferm- as the beer ferments, it does get hotter. That reaction is exothermic, so the beer's rising in temperature. We want to make sure it stays in a constant because we don't want small flavors that arise from hot fermentation. Uh, once we're done fermenting out, we're going to travel to the end and we'll walk down that way. We're going to go this way to the right.
1: Questions yet? Why do you? Uh, I, this is just an assumption that you're not doing this. Um, do you, I see lots of cans, but not bottles. Do you bottle your beer?
0: Just we bottle cans? only the sour beers, uh, but everything that's a normal beer goes into a can. And that is because in the US market right now, cans are cheaper to ship, cheaper to store, they stack. The stores like them because they fit in the sets better. Uh, Convenience stores like them because they fit the singles better. They're smaller, therefore they don't take up a larger amount. Uh, they're imper- <clears throat> excuse me, they're impervious to light, which is a better uh, you, you know UV rays a quick spoiler or destructor of beer. Oh, right. uh, they also are, have actually better technology to keep oxygen out than a crown does on top of the cap. Okay. Uh, so all our water, we're blessed here just cause obviously we're, we're piggybacking off the bourbon guys. Uh, we have great just groundwater here in Kentucky. Uh, it, it's very, very hard limestone water, which makes for great IPAs, uh, lagers, darker ales, uh, just nice and crisp. Now when we get it, all we have to do to it is we basically have a, a reverse osmosis system. So we're taking out the chlorine, <laughs> we're taking out the stuff that the water company's putting into it. Uh, once we do that, through an activated charcoal filter it's good to go our water we're so blessed here versus we have friends in some of the larger cities uh like indianapolis cincinnati that have to really really strip the water down to nothing add minerals back to it to keep it constant uh for us we have the, the water here is single source therefore we know we're getting the same thing every time so we're really really blessed in that aspect any other questions yeah, can I ask you why the explosion in uh you know small great question uh I wish I had a a pinpoint answer for you. I can give you my opinion. Yeah. You know, I think in the US market for the longest time, uh, with the rise of mass market beer, you know, Budweiser, Miller Coors, uh, the ad campaigns that they did, that's what beer was supposed to taste like. It was supposed to be ice cold. Uh, That was the mindset that people got into, as well as uh, we, we, at some point in time, around the same time, actually, we got away from mom and pop restaurants. Uh, from you know, home style, hometown spots, a pub, to more chain-driven type restaurants, uh, which is kind of the same thing in the restaurant world as what the beer world was. Uh, so I think what you've seen now is a pushback, a counterculture to that mass-marketed beer that that, that was shoved down everyone's throats for so long. Literally, it was, it was terrible.
1: You come here and you, you nothing drink nothing that right. chemical beer. Yes, right.
0: And they wake up in the morning, it's feel terrible. Horrible. Yeah, it was horrible. I and mean, you couldn't get decent beer. People forget. Yes. And so I think there was a probably with the proliferation of people traveling more as well, you know, because I can remember being young and taking a trip through my French class at the high school. And it was one of those 15 day trips. And we saw 20 countries in Europe. You know, you're in the same spot for six hours. And one of the things that everyone talked about was the beer was warm over there. The beer was warm. Uh, for, uh, and I was younger at the time, but much less was put on the flavor. of The beer was just on the fact that the beer was warm. Uh, now, just throw out a quick nugget so we can get back in the front. Now, right around the 40s and 50s in America, a lot of the big beer companies that were buying the small ones up, continuing in the 60s and 70s, came with this thing of ice cold beer. Right, you, We've got the coldest beer in town. Our beer is ice cold. Ice cold, ice cold. Uh, you know, Throw away all the cask ales and things of that nature because that's garbage. We wouldn't have tap beer, ice cold. Well, scientifically, CO2, carbon dioxide, will stay in liquid when it's colder longer, which is the reason if you have a soda and it's ice cold and you give it a little shake and you pop it up, it'll spray and foam a little bit. Same with the beer. If that soda or beer is hot and you shake it up, you pop it, it just everywhere. Because when a liquid is warmer, that CO2 wants to escape. So somebody at an ad agency that was way smarter than me back in the fifties and sixties and seventies said, if we can convince American people to drink light beer and drink it ice cold when it hits their stomach, what's the one thing you always hear about people? Their complaints about it. Beer makes me feel bloated. Mm -hmm. That's because the CO2 is coming out once it reaches your body and gets warmer. But if you can start with beer that's way colder, it takes longer for the CO2 to escape, which therefore by the time you feel full, you've already ingested another beer or two in you. It's all a marketing ploy, right? So I think if I could then come back to the circuitous way to answer your question, an education for the consumer is going on right now. They're understanding that there are other products out there outside of Budweiser miller Coors, uh because i feel like being in the beer industry we've been the laughing stock of the world when it comes to beer for the better part of the last 50 years because they knew you could come when you came here like just to your point you knew the beer was going to be terrible and then when you got back to your home country wherever it may be that was the one yeah we had a great time uh you know but the two main things that you know it was crowded the place was big or the beer was terrible that was usually the you know uh, once we're done fermenting, just get back to our how our take on beer. These are our bright tanks in the back. Uh, bright beer tanks just mean clean beer tanks. Uh, we can carbonate uh, and pressurize inside that vessel. From here, we just go into the cooler or go into the can. It's our canning line back here to my right. The can's about 40 cans a minute. Uh, talk about our friends at Budweiser, their machine can's about 2,500 cans a minute. Uh, that's the kind of different, their canning line wouldn't fit in this building. Uh, and then from there, it goes in the cooler, which we'll take a look in from the cooler it goes out the door so real quick if it's a hot summer day and you can't find anybody working they're all in here <laughs> no, yeah, uh, I that. but on the other side if it's a very very cold day they come in here to warm up and it stays a constant 36 degrees but to us uh, it's very very important to keep beer cold cold is a, is a very very key part probably the most key part to freshness uh, beer is a very pit, perishable product ours very perishable so the minute it leaves the canning line, the canning line, it stays cold until the minute it hits the cold truck to be shipped out. And I don't know if this is the biggest cooler in Scott County in Georgetown, but this is the most beer in one, one facility. So in case of the apocalypse, just get here as quick as you can. We've got enough beer to last us at least a few years. So I like it. That's right.
1: Thanks so much to DH for taking us on the tour, and I hope you enjoyed it. I'll have photos of the brewery on my post, so check them out on alushlifemanual.com. If you want more info about the state, head to www.kentuckytourism.com. We're staying in Kentucky next time, but we're heading to Louisville, or more accurately, Shiveley, where Stitzelweller Distillery sits and is now the home of Bullet Bourbon. Until next time, bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life Podcast, the sister of A Lush Life Manual. For more information and links to everything you heard, plus a bit more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde. All things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. Theme music is by Steven Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra. And I'm your hostess, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar.